You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week we have one of my favourite guests from 2022 back in the studio. He's changed roles, he's changed businesses, but his outlooks on the industry are just as relevant and important to us. Is Dylan Camby of 5.8. Dylan, how are you going? Yes, very well, thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to be back here and share my thoughts and observations. It's lovely to have you back and it's really cool to see you personally grow in your career through the industry. Last time you were here, you were in the economics data research space at Rewa, obviously a very important role that I guess you're an unsung hero there. A lot of us use your data every week in that space and now you've moved to private industry where they're harnessing your skills at 5.8. How have you found that transition? Can I ask why you make the move in the first place? The last 12 months have involved a fair bit of change. In terms of transition, it was an opportunity that presented itself and could utilise the skills I had developed through my previous experiences, including that at Rewa. In terms of my role, I joined 5A as employee number 24 when I joined last year. Today, we sit closer to 40, so that highlights how quickly the business has grown. In terms of my role, I look after the research function at 5A. And in simple terms, my role is to tell stories based on observations of quantitative data and qualitative interactions with stakeholders. It wasn't necessarily that I was looking looking to change roles. I was very much satisfied with my position at Rewa. I'd grown there in terms of a professional capacity during my time there. The skills I'd developed in terms of observing market trends and applying those to advocate for the industry at Rewa were really something that I could also apply here in the private sector. So in terms of my fundamental role, not an awful lot's changed in terms of my responsibilities. I suppose the application is what's new element there. Yeah, well, uh, look, you get a business like 5.8 tap on the shoulder, you take it pretty seriously, don't you? Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, I've been here, I joined last year, so I've been here long enough to learn the new organisation and I'm broadly satisfied with the move. It's a great business to be a part of and it's a young organisation. Well, let's learn about it a little bit. So people have heard of Tatarang, I'm sure they have. Can you explain it a little bit more what Tatarang does and then how 5.8 sits into that and then how you sit in 5.8? Sure. So Tatarang is the ultimate holding company for the Forest family's private business interests. Tatarang invests or takes a long-term investment horizon and plays both in the listed and unlisted space. The portfolio spans a wide range. So that includes agri-food, energy, resources, property and lifestyle. So there are six core divisions that sit within the Tatarang portfolio. So that includes 5.8, which is the property division. Harvest Road, SFM Marine, Squadron Energy, Wailu Metals, and Z1Z is the hospitality side. Yep, so there's a fair bit of synergy, I suppose, with the rest of the Tatarang businesses. Well, especially you think about property, it sits among so many of those, doesn't it? Property is one of those integral components of the economy and does have a very strong linkage to, to the general business landscape. 5.8 is essentially the property division of the group. So 5.8 own, invest in, develop, and manage a whole range of property assets. So that includes residential, office, retail, industrial, and more recently, hotel property that we've acquired across Australia and New Zealand. There's some pretty notable ones, right? So most people would know that Andrea Forrest has got some involvement with the Indiana Tea Rooms. So it's 5.8 specifically that's behind what the plans are there with Indiana Tea Rooms and the ideas we see scattered around the newspapers sometimes? Yes, that is an asset that falls within the 5.8 portfolio. In terms of our portfolio generally, we consider ourselves to be property revitalists. Um, So I'll speak to that and that might give a bit of context as to what we look for or aim to achieve in the property space. What property revitalists mean is essentially we've got a genuine desire to benefit the communities and cities by connecting people with meaningful places. We're focused on leaving a positive impact 
And there are four key pillars that guide our strategic direction. So those four key pillars are people, planet, profits, and place. And the intersection of those is essentially the fusion of what shapes the portfolio and our intentions at each of the asset level basis. When you're sponsored by the richest guy in Australia, it's a pretty good space to be, I think, to have those four pillars. Most businesses simply just have to focus on profit just to keep the doors open. So when you've got your ultimate boss saying, guys, let's leave a legacy, let's do some projects that actually will make a difference and be hanging around 50, 100 years from now and people will think back to this. I guess it gives you guys a bit of freedom to be creative sometimes in not just looking at the bottom line, but thinking about how do we leave our mark and make a dollar on the way. Yeah, I think that certainly helps with having a strong backing behind 5.8 and puts us in a very good position to, I suppose, be revitalist and underpin the whole spectrum of how property can add net positive benefit to everyone involved. Let's talk about the projects you guys have got. Most people, if they drive down Mounts Bay Road, would see the Minduru signs and the Tatarang signs along the Swan Brewery. Are there any plans for that or is it simply just that's your headquarters? Is that where you work out of? The Swan was our office up until recently. It is where the broader Tatarang group is based and Minduru's also got its offices there. Many of the underlying Tatarang businesses were also based there. We are in the process of, I suppose, standing up on our own two feet. So 190 is another asset that's under the 5.8 portfolio and that will soon become our new home. So the business is very diverse and there are a number of exciting projects underway. From a research point of view, that keeps me on my toes because there's always something different to look at. One of the other projects we've got is a binning up land development, which is an opportunity near Bunbury. That's one where the stars are really aligning. There's a lot of industrial and growth activity happening in the greater Bunbury region. There's a lithium plant that's creating a lot of jobs in the area. And there's also a strong pool of trade-up buyers seeking upgrades. So binning up is one of those that's filling a missing gap in the market and one that we are excited about. So is 5 expecting that Bunbury is going to have a bit of a boom going forward in terms of population and their requirement? Is that the plan? I think we're already seeing signs of that happening on the ground. So much like the rest of Perth, vacancy rates are very low in the area. Train 1 and 2 are both being commissioned at that Kemerton lithium plant, and they obviously attract a lot of um, higher skilled technical workers that essentially would like to live near, near where they work, and that's obviously dri- a big driver of growth in the area. What about Carillion City? I saw a photo in the paper, I guess it would be last year, that you guys have picked that up. Is there any longer term or short term plans for that? Is it simply an asset you're holding? We see Carillion as a blank canvas and an opportunity to potentially redefine the CBD. So that's a well positioned asset and that's something that could connect the entire city from Elizabeth Key all the way through to Yagan Square. It's, it's so strategic, isn't it? And we've seen a lot of permutations, people having a crack at it and it just it doesn't seem to have worked. And this is a great example, I think, where a business like 5.8 can step in, have a bit of a longer term view and really create an asset that consumers want to be in whether it's for food or for retail or whatever you guys are going to do, that's where I see a lot of benefit to our community, obviously. I suppose we've been in the growth phase over the past few years. A lot of our projects are in the development phase at the moment. Going forward, we're very much focused on, I suppose, delivering those projects. So mm. 190 is one of those projects that's now going to be completed mid this year and going to be our home. And pushing through on a lot of those other projects is is a key priority going forward now that we've scaled up our people capability and can mature as a business. It's cool to see some companies that investing in the development of St. George's Terrace. It feels like it's been a while. Obviously, NX was done, Brookfield Plaza. You know, it's been a little while since a big business has actually put some money onto the terrace. So it's really good to see. Okay, so let's talk more broadly on the market now. That's why I've got you in. We've just seen the 10th interest rate rise from Dr. Lowe. It seems like it's nearly a distraction to the broader picture these days, but it's also 
part of the, the big picture and it influences the way that people make property decisions both in a resi space, commercial space. Obviously, on a residential space, it's affecting people's affordabilities every day. From a commercial space, it's starting to affect yields too. How do you see that fitting into the broader picture right now? Property is a through-the-cycle asset class and it's very much influenced by the broader economy. So changes in interest rates, the business environment and so forth all flow down through to property, whether that be commercial or residential. Of course, interest rates have risen quite considerably over the past year. Central banks are committed to reducing inflation and they're doing everything they can to try and tackle inflation back lower towards target. Economics 101 says demand and supply drive prices. So what we previously saw was a very strong level of demand coming out of lockdowns. Consumers were keen to spend money. They had money. They had money. They were given money, weren't they? 100%. So every second person was either buying a new car, new TV, fridge, or going on holiday, or buying a property. So that created an excessive level of demand. Higher interest rates are a tool that can be used to try and tackle or reduce some of that demand. And that's been one of the reasons why interest rates have risen so much over the past 12 months. I think it's a pretty blunt tool these days, though. I think it's the first time I saw some arguments put forward recently internationally that usually monetary policy should work in this space, right? But because our supply chain, both in property and the broader economy, is so knackered because of what's happening globally and has for the last couple of years, that it's the first time where monetary policy maybe doesn't have the space that it used to to actually affect demand without affecting supply anyway. And all it's doing is cancelling each other out, making everything more expensive rather than just dropping demand and having excess supply because there is no excess supply even if you drop demand. Do you get what I'm saying there? Do you have a view on that? It looks like high interest rates are doing their job. You're right that it's not a it's not a linear tool that has its desired impact without having any undesired consequences. There are certainly consequences of higher interest rates and unintended impacts of that. Well, it impacts inflation as well, right? Because if you're going to make it more expensive for people to supply things, well, that's inflation. Sure. The RBA's forecasts are now for inflation to clip back below 5% by the end of the year. If those expectations were to eventuate, then the RBA has been successful in tackling inflation through higher interest rates. Yes, there is a bit of pain involved in terms of increasing financing costs and making feasibility of certain investments a little bit more difficult. But overall, they do have their desired impact. The RBA is facing, I suppose, two contrasting risks at the moment. In short, they want to raise interest rates to tackle inflation. So the first risk is not increasing interest rates enough and letting inflation run rampant for a period of time. Now, the longer term impacts of that could be quite costly in terms of then bringing inflation back lower again and also re-anchoring consumers' expectations of what normal inflation is. So historically, normal inflation was considered to be between that 2 or 3% mark. That was an acceptable level. Correct. And at the moment, it's, or more recently, it has been excessive to that. So it's about re-anchoring inflation expectations and keeping them anchored at 2 to 3% and bringing it down. The other risk is, I suppose, going too hard and raising interest rates so that the economy cools. Or you cause a recession. Correct. But I suppose the, in the RBA's mind, essentially my view is that the RBA knows it's raised interest rates enough to successfully tackle inflation, but the risk of not doing enough is worse than the risk of doing too much. Because if interest rates had risen so much, that causes an economic slowdown. The solution to that's quite easy. It's, again, just reducing interest rates. Yeah. Whereas the fix to not raising interest rates enough is perhaps a little bit more tedious and a higher risk from the RBA's point of view. For a longer time. Correct. And that's probably one of the reasons why the RBA has been so strong on its rhetoric recently in terms of being aggressive for 
setting future benchmarks for higher rates. You reckon they've learned a bit of a lesson in being a bit too soft on the front end of all this and now they're jawboning it down further and hoping that confidence drops before they have to do any more than they want to? Sure, but I mean, I suppose it comes down to the nature of what the RBA is working on. The RBA is very much dependent on data. Now, data comes out after it's happened on the ground. It's always a lag. Correct, and that's probably one of the reasons why they were possibly slower to react in the first place. And again, as we approach the higher end of their tightening cycle, they must see data of inflation, confident data that inflation has been cooling, and therefore they can take their foot off the uh, gas. It obviously affects the most vulnerable people in the residential market, and that's something that I don't think ever has changed. It's not new about this cycle or the last cycle. We're such a small economy here in Perth. We're 10% of the market, really. So whilst some people in Perth might be feeling it, the statistics will show that it's still not an unaffordable market for average Joe to buy average house in Perth. However, before they even started raising the rates a year ago in Sydney, it was already too unaffordable. Then they've gone and doubled rates in that time. Obviously, the central bank will respond to the majority of the nation's data points, and that is Sydney and Melbourne. For me, I feel like whatever we're feeling here, it's two, three times worse over there. And that whilst we have a bit of empathy for people in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, we're nearly insulated by their pain. And that before we get to that point, the RBA should be done. Sure. I mean, that's probably a fair observation. Um, It comes down to purely what house prices are here relative to incomes and what they are over east. So house prices are, of course, a lot more affordable here. And therefore, people have smaller mortgages here and therefore less sensitive to higher or increased interest rates. But even to Sydney, yes, everybody's feeling the pinch, but everyone's not feeling the pinch to the same extent. So one of Australia's favourite pastimes at a Sunday barbecue is to talk about sports, property and interest rates. So there's a fair few people coming off fixed interest rates this year. And of course, they will be moving to much higher variable rates. But they've had around a year to, I suppose, get their affairs in order. We know what's coming, right? We're in a position now where the average mortgage is now going to be spending $1,000 per month more than they were a year ago. Data should show that someone who's got a $500,000 mortgage should be able to have that in the bank, should be able to have that in the disposable income, at least in Western Australia. Even nationally, I mean, look, interest rates have been ultra low the last three years, and they're returning back to what I suppose was historically normal pre that. But when those people took out a mortgage, so not everybody purchased property in the last three years, only a small portion of the, of the population did. So the rest of the population was used to higher rates and they're merely returning to that. Over that time, they've probably seen incomes grow and amortised some of their loan as well and therefore the higher interest rate is on a lower principal amount the recent home buyers are probably the ones who are going to feel that the most however even if they took out a mortgage at i don't know 1.99 percent fixed which were the going rates at the lows the banks were assessing those at rates of 45 percent which is where we are currently so essentially these people were accessing credit on the basis that they could repay at four to five percent and which is where we're at at the moment so those people who were right at the limits two and a half three years ago they're the ones that are probably the most vulnerable. Everyone else, even if they got a mortgage two years ago, if they were sitting well within their serviceability, they, the data should show that they should, still should have the capacity to pay as much as we don't want to these higher interest rates. Correct. And, and that's one of the reasons why I don't believe there's going to be any widespread mortgage distress or anything like that in the housing market. Well, let's talk to that then in Perth. If the view is that, yes, it's less affordable, but it's not unaffordable, it's less comfortable, but it's, it's not a point where we're selling our homes, where mortgage stress defaulting with the banks, and we're talking about the residential space right now, that demand supply situation in Western Australia in residential, 
where do you see things being this year? Obviously, Alan Osler, Chief Economist of NAB, forecasts a 13% drop in Perth. Were you shaking your head? When I'm looking at the market, I think it's important to look at the fundamentals, and that's purely demand and supply. So I think we touched on this the last time I was on, and my view has not changed. I think the fundamentals are still quite strong for the property market. The market where it gives me the most confidence is the rental market. Over the last year, borders have now reopened and we're seeing migration flows return. That's essentially new additional demand for the rental market because migrants typically rent before they purchase. At the same time, higher interest rates have meant that some first home buyers who are previously renting and might have looked at purchasing their own property, they may not be as willing to or in a position to purchase their own property now. That means that demand for the rental properties is going to hold relatively strong. At the same time, investors haven't been able to supply new properties into the property market to the same levels as they previously could have, as higher interest rates mean they've got to have the investment stack up at a higher rate of return. And we're not building. Correct. And that's the other thing. The cost of construction has risen quite considerably and land availability is quite scarce. So we've got demand reasonably strong and supply that's limited. And that fundamentally should underpin rental growth going forward. And of course, um, high rental values will eventually translate into encouraging investors back into the market to help realign some of that demand and supply. But higher rental values will also help underpin valuations on the capital side. David Cresp from Urbis suggested that he was nervous that Perth is actually about to have a sustained run in terms of growth in that we will probably at some point stop being the affordability capital of Australia. Is that something you think is a risk as well? I wouldn't necessarily say it's a base case, but I would certainly say it's a plausible upside risk. Property in Perth is quite affordable considering we've got one of the highest incomes in the country and one of the lowest purchase prices. But also in context, property in Perth is quite well positioned in terms of the lifestyle element it can offer. So the median property here, you can go further up north and buy something close to close to the beach and offer that lifestyle element. Whereas in Sydney, the median property doesn't necessarily offer that. So it's not necessarily comparing a dollar for dollar story. It's what's accessible um, at an attractive price here in Perth. I always say the rental market is the canary in the coal mine for the sales market. Would you agree that when we start seeing the rental market push through 1%, push through 2%, 3%, whenever that is in the future, if there's no other data point you look at, that's probably the one that starts to indicate to you that the rest of the market is going to soften. So look, I mean, the vacancy rate right now is at multi-decade lows across all capital cities across the nation. So I think Rewa had records back about 50 years or so, which is probably one of the longer time series. But even that, those figures were around that 0.7%, which when we get that low, the actual number doesn't really matter. No. It's just <laughs> chronically low supply. But that said, um, even if there is uh, somewhat of an increase going forward in the vacancy rate, so typically we'd consider ourselves to have a fair vacancy rate or a balanced market at 25 to 3.5%. We're well below those levels at the moment. So a lot of supply has to come onto the market before... Or a lot of to- demand has to leave. Correct. But that's unlikely to happen because so fundamentally demand for property is the number of people that live in a particular place and population growth isn't likely to go negative. There's still X number of people that need X number of houses to give them shelter. Mm. So that demand story is probably less inelastic than the supply angle is. And therefore, unless supply responds, the market's likely to remain tight for some time. So really the only way that the vacancy rate in Western Australia pushes up anywhere close to the highs we saw five, six years ago is an excess of building far in excess of the demand for those houses in the first place. Correct. So two things have to happen. First, we've got to, I suppose, cancel out the undersupply and get to a balanced market and then create an oversupply. That's probably unlikely to happen in the near term. Well, it it certainly can't, right? Because it takes two years to build a house and our housing commencements are lower than they've 
they were before the COVID and that was the lowest it had been. In fact, our housing commencement, I've said this a couple of times now on the podcast, but I'll say it to you, in December 2022 was 996 properties. In December 1983, 40 years ago, it was 1,025 when the population was less than half what it is now. And we're at capacity in terms of our workforce right, right now. It makes you really consider just how small our supply going forward is going to be when it comes to assisting with that vacancy rate. And, and, I, and I say assisting on purpose because this is a problem. A vacancy rate of this low is not a good thing for our community. It creates homelessness. It reduces uh, options for people. It reduces the ability for people to move around freely. It's not a good thing to be in this situation, is it? I suppose the ideal in any market is to be balanced and whether we're oversupplied or undersupplied, depending on where we're in the cycle, is is never a good position to be in. I think that stat you gave really hits the nail on the head in terms of that restrictiveness we've got in terms of balancing supply back in. But that said, over time, um, supply will eventually rebalance. So one um, plausible scenario is that rents, rents rise enough to attract investors back into the market and create that new housing stock and reach a new equilibrium which will eventually lead to a, to a balanced market but again that's going to take a little while to get there well with those extended construction times and the raising interest rate cycle gareth Ed, chief economist of cba has said a number of times now in his publications that he believes that by the end of this year or sometime around there the rba is actually going to start dropping rates again do you share his view views are always changing i suppose based on information that's available and interpretations of of that information right now is the first time in a long time where there isn't necessarily a consensus so we've got some experts at one end of the spectrum suggesting interest rates are going to cool and at the other end of the spectrum interest rates are going to rise or um, keep going right yeah correct but in terms of the housing market if we're talking about those fundamentals in either scenario the platform is quite strong going forward one of the other things to to bear in mind is historically it, so interest rates do tend to have a negative impact on affordability However, there have been a number of instances historically where interest rates have risen and property prices have also risen. Well, let's look at Perth between 2004 and 2007. Exactly. They were both rising rapidly at the same time. Correct. And and the other thing that underpins, I suppose, some of that growth is the strength in the economy. So the broader WA economy is still doing quite well. The resources um, backdrop is quite positive with China now recently reopening and ramping up its industrial engines again. Recently, they also announced a growth target of 5% growth for the year, which which is obviously positive for the resources backdrop here domestically. How do we sit in terms of the nation? Are we leading the way in terms of growth? What does it look like going forward in terms of selling ourselves domestically to immigration? In terms of selling ourselves to immigration, I think the two things that stand out is how resilient the labour market has been since the pre-pandemic through COVID through to now. So job vacancies are still elevated. They're not as high as they were at the back at points in 2022, but they're still elevated. And that means there's plenty of opportunity for new migrants to come in and cap- capture some of those jobs. Those jobs tend to be higher paying than over east. Average incomes here are, are definitely higher than those comparables. The other angle is affordability in terms of what migrants can expect to to live in here for a certain disposable income at the end of the day right let's just suggest that we all have the same income which we don't we actually have a higher income than most uh, locations around the country simply having a lower rent or a lower mortgage means you've you've got more to play with to live your life you're you're 100 right there the reason i harked on so much about rates and the way they're going is probably the second part of this is the commercial space we know on this podcast both in this room and the listenership have learned that the value of commercial property is generally a derivative of the yield that we want to get out of it. And that yield is generally a reflection of the cost of capital. 
which is generally the cash rate or the interest rate, right? So as interest rates go up, and let's say that they've gone up 350 basis points in the last couple of years, as interest rates go up, we expect that the yield that investors need goes up and therefore the value of that property for that return would go down. Now, the cash rate's gone up 3.5% in the last year. Yields haven't gone up 3.5%. What's your view on that? Why is that the case? That's obviously quite elastic. Asset returns are essentially a derivative of what markets are pricing in relative to, to how conditions unfold. So at the moment, markets are pricing in one sharp round of interest rate increases and stable earnings earnings growth outlook going forward. In terms of the property market, so you're right, interest rates have moved far more considerably than what property market yields have done so far. One of the things that we're observing on that front is fewer transaction activities as buyer expectations and seller expectations aren't necessarily matched at the moment. One area that can give a good insight in terms of what expectations are for commercial property values is a listed real estate market. So REITs have fallen quite considerably um, since peaking early last year. So they're down around 20% and a lot of REITs are currently trading at below net tangible asset backing, which essentially means that investors are pricing in those REITs below what book values are behind the scenes. So one of the key reasons they're likely doing that is they're expecting further yield decompression as in line with interest rates moving higher. And essentially, yeah, they're pricing in that to unfold going forward. So if you say values have dropped 20%, let's say that we expected a yield of 5% a year ago. Is that now what we expect a yield of 6% now? Is Um, that how you're seeing it play out? It's not a direct reflection of the basis points. The cash rate has gone up. It's more in that reflection of how the rates are going. Market yields haven't moved as significantly so far. And one of the reasons is the lack of transaction activity. So you think they've actually moved a lot. It's just that we haven't seen the data on it because the buyers and sellers aren't coming together at a price yet. Yes, that's that's plausible. So in Western Australia, we've seen a number of assets trade anywhere in the 4% to probably a maximum of 6% back in 2022. It's been a couple of months now in 2023, we've seen very few transactions. We've seen some some assets trading in the really low sixes, a lot still trading in the mid to high fives, not really a lot trading in the fours anymore. Where do you think it's going to balance out in Western Australia? And, and how is that different across the country as well? Yields as, as determined by property valuations will vary across the country depending on, on the risk matrix of each, each capital city. And the asset types as well, right? 100%. So for example, industrial property has been one of the hot hot, um, almost favourable property classes off late on the back of the low supply there, similar to the residential market and the runway for continued rental growth there. So so essentially that's being perceived as less risky compared to other asset classes. And then on the other end, you get something that might be considered a little bit more safer, like neighbourhood retail, which houses your essential non-discretionary spending items. Childcare, fuel, fast food, some of the numbers we see in the East Coast. You see things trading at like three and a half, four percent last year, and and you still see some of those numbers going out there. It befuddles me why we don't see those numbers or anything close to that in Perth. Sure. For so, a, this, let's say for the same tenant, it could be a KFC, right? That's a national brand. Sure. I mean, in terms of those um, returns, so it it comes down to the benchmark return, which is the risk free rate usually considered to be the ten year government bond yield, and then there's usually a risk premium on top of that to compensate for supposed additional risk off a particular Yeah, what's the field. point? You may as well just have a bond. Correct. But the other the other factor that goes into that is expectations for rental growth. An investor might be looking or may be willing to accept a slightly lower return on today's metrics if it's expecting significant growth and therefore achieving a higher return tomorrow. And maybe that growth is built into the lease you've got. Maybe you've got a 10-year lease that already has that growth built in every year with a rent review. Yeah, they definitely play, play a role in terms of property valuations. Generally speaking, given that 
property yields haven't moved in line with what broader market interest rates have risen. We're always on the lookout for opportunities if they make sense. But one of the key things that we we are on the lookout for is perhaps returns at higher levels to reprice with those higher interest rates. So do you think we're going to continue to see some increases in the expected yield for all of these commercial assets? Or do you think that the longer term view is that, you know, it, it, it might sit around the sixes going forward. There's a bit of volatility at the moment, but we expect to settle next year and an asset generally around the sixes, for example, in Western Australia and the industrial space is a fair price going forward. There's two things that, um, that underpin that. The first is where, where does the broader interest rate environment settle? And where does the risk-free rate end up? So if that ends up at closer to around 4%, then that becomes the benchmark. Historically, risk premiums have been around that 3 to 4% mark in Perth. So if property is still perceived to be as risky as it was previously and offer the same level of returns or return expectations are in line with those, then you should expect, expect yields to be 3 or 4% above the risk-free rate. Mm. However, on the flip side, if property is perceived to be less risky than it was previously, then investors might be willing to accept a lower risk premium and therefore yields might not decompress as much. So I don't understand why people perceive Sydney assets to be less risky than Perth assets when they might be leased out by the same tenant in a similar-ish location. Perth isn't on the same risk spectrum as Sydney. Sydney is is obviously a larger city. We spoke about um, how house prices in Sydney were higher than Perth last time and a similar story would apply to commercial property and, and the risk element. So WA is possibly more risky given the reliance on the cyclical mining and construction backdrops, whereas in Sydney there are a number of other industries that doesn't see that same vol- level of volatility. And of course, the population base is a lot larger. So it is reasonable to expect Sydney have lower yields because property, in theory, is less risky there. But I would see it as an opportunity for those looking at commercial assets in Perth, especially in industries that people would see to be recession-proof, your child cares, your fuels, your fast foods, these sort of things. They seem to push through any part of the cycle that uh, there's considerable value in Perth for a lot of these national brands. Sure. I mean, and, and this probably goes back to where value is across the board. I mean, Perth does offer relatively high yields and therefore uh, is an opportunity for investors to tap into and and capture some of that greater return. So before we leave, Dylan, I wanted to give the listeners a bit of a summary from yourself as to where you see the rest of the year panning out, both from a macro perspective and from a, a Perth perspective. So do you see inflation getting tackled this year and and we're not talking about it so much in 2024? Inflation is definitely the hot topic. It has been over the last 12 months or so. Expectations are that inflation does start to cool back. So the RBA's forecasts are it to be below that 5% mark. So it might not be the hot topic going forward. It's still likely to remain high, just not as high as we've seen. But I think it's something that that will be yesterday's story and very soon. I hope so. And I hope the interest rate rise cycle is also yesterday's story because not only does it hurt everyone's back pocket, it's also quite distracting for the rest of us to just get on with the longer term plans we've got in property, whether it's in commercial or residential space too. Let's talk about prices, right? We spoke obviously about the demand and supply relationship in Perth and affordability. In summary, is the Perth market looking stronger by the end of this year than it is right now? I think it comes down to the fundamentals. So in the residential market, um, the demand demand backdrop is relatively healthy and the supply, the increase in supply is somewhat constrained and that will continue to support prices going forward. And then on the commercial front, um, a similar story comes down to the strength in the economy, which is um, proving to be quite resilient and on a, on a growth trajectory. Expectations are that the economy will still continue to grow just at a slower pace than what we've seen from those boom years recently coming out of the pandemic. 
but a more normal sustainable level of, of growth and uh, which again underpins um, business activity and an occupancy at commercial property so um, yet yeah, broadly the outlook is is somewhat positive if I could ask you to pick a sector in Western Australia right now where you'd be focusing most of your time looking for an opportunity of value with the lowest downside risk, not to say it has no downside risk, but industrial, commercial, residential, which one would be your favourite going forward in Perth right now? It will come down to, I suppose, the yields and what market pricing is for where the opportunities can deliver the best returns. T- taking pricing aside, um, one of the markets that's probably more resilient um, through the cycle is going to be your neighbourhood retail assets. So they're usually well located in population hubs and anchored by a supermarket. So like a small IGA hub, something like that. Correct. So th- th- those will tend tend to have a fairly stable level of income and occupancy, which I suppose is um, is that consistent return. The other angle of value is, I suppose, on the development side. So some of these assets might have a large car park that's not necessarily being fully utilised and it might be an opportunity to reposition some of that land as a mixed-use development and deliver some further returns from that as well. Oh, that's a hot topic. There's so many people I'm seeing right now looking to reuse a lot of the uh, the car park or some of the back of the industrial warehouse or even renovating the warehouse. This is a space I think going forward, especially with increased cost in construction where people have to start being a bit more creative about the way they uh, extract value out of the assets they've already got, for example. Dylan Canby at 58 these days. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing some stories about what 58's up to and and the purpose of the place. And as always, thank you for your insights into the, the broader market in property in 2023. Thanks again, mate. Sure, thanks Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!